G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. 2020, bringing a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Weekdays on UCB's Vision Radio Network. Find out more at vision.org.au. It's Neil Johnson with you on this Friday edition of 2020, talking through an important topic today, and that is, do we live to work or do we work to live? A couple of guests joining us through the hour, and we'll talk through this issue, but first guest to introduce us to today, Philip Joyce, whose story is one of recovery from a severe breakdown. Uh, Philip is a father of four children, a family man. He has served in, a, in numerous senior executive roles across government and the private sector, companies like Qantas, the New South Wales Police Service, and a whole bunch of other levels of government and private sector industry. His story is recorded in a book called Streams of Inspiration, Volume 2. It's a mainstream book and uh, tells stories of uh, recovery from uh, significant uh, upsets in life. Philip Joyce is joining us now. Hello, Philip. Welcome along to 2020. G'day, Neil. How are you? Very well, Philip. And, you know, thanks so much for being available to talk about your story today. And uh, you've had some time to uh, think through uh, the way that you talk about your story. And these days you even stand before groups of executives and you tell the story about uh, your going through a significant burnout. Uh, Philip, I wonder whether you could just uh, introduce yourself in the sense of uh, telling us, uh, you know, what sort of uh, roles you've played in the past and what you were doing when you actually uh, started to go through what we'd call a breakdown or this time of burnout. Well, how long have we got? Um, very quickly, Neil, um, I started off as a, as a teacher in actual fact and um, didn't end up teaching at all because there were too many teachers coming onto the market basically and I ended up in Qantas as an international flight attendant. So I had the, the wonderful pleasure of representing our country flying around the world um, for a number of years and eventually came onto the ground and went into cabin crew training as the manager there, uh, moved into marketing after a number of years and managed the economy class product across the world, which was an exciting thing because British Airways was taking the market share from us and we had to figure out how we could actually improve that. My biggest claim to fame when I was in that particular position was to actually... Um, maintained the peanuts, peanuts on board in economy class. That was a real uh, coup, I can tell you. Um, I've moved on, obviously, through um, various organisations since Qantas. I've been involved in high-level change management programs. You mentioned that I worked uh, in the New South Wales Police Service. Um, that was an amazing experience for me, too, in terms of being able to teach uh, you know, police a whole range of different skills. In fact, I actually was able to... Um, uh, design and implement and have accredited the first national qualification for crash investigators. Um, so I've done a huge amount of different sort of activities and eventually um, I ended up in government uh, at a senior level and uh, was basically number three in charge of a department um, and also during that period acted as uh, a deputy chief executive. So um, I've been through the operational areas, I've been through middle management, senior management and, and basically to the top of that tree 
Um, it's been an exciting 30 years. Yeah. Philip, let's talk about what you were going through at the time when you realised not everything was right. And uh, for you, that was the start of a breakdown. Or yeah. this was, you know, you were starting to reap what you'd sown when it comes to all of the effort you're putting into your work, uh, yeah. this whole idea of burnout. What were you doing at the time? Explain what it was like to actually uh, get into that downward spiral. Yeah, well, it actually crept on up on me so quickly um, in hindsight, when I look back on where I was, there were certain signs that, that had occurred to both um, the people I was working with and my family, but I was not uh, aware of what those signs were because I was so actually um, involved in, in the work that I was doing. Um, and so all of a sudden I found that one particular morning uh, I just couldn't get out of bed. It was just as simple as that. I'd I'd had a very disturbed sleep that night thinking about a whole range of different issues to do with work and the various things that were causing me concern at that particular level. Um, I could not actually get out of of bed. I woke up. uh, I was late. So that caused some stress in the first place because I had an hour commute to get to work. Um, And so I turned over and went back to sleep. Mm. The next day I got up and um, I, I went to work and I wasn't particularly feeling well. It was the beginning of a brand new year. People were slowly coming back to work um, and I was meted with the, met with the normal sort of um, hello, how are you, what a great, wonderful new year, etc., etc. but I felt very, very um, uh, anxious. And I walked into my office and um, the day that I hadn't been there um, was the first day where many people had come back to work and all of a sudden all my intros were full. Um, there were various um, ministerial reports that had to go to the minister urgently and so forth. Um, there were hundreds of emails that I had to go through and as a result of that I cleared as best as I could the urgent stuff and then I walked out. Philip, when you talk about stress, how do you describe that to people in the conversation or groups that you're talking to? What do you describe as stress? Well, it's obviously it's a mental mental condition but it's also a physiological one in the sense that you start to feel very, very uptight. Your blood pressure increases, your heart rate increases, your mental capacity to uh, think about things on a logical pattern starts to deteriorate. You can't think of more than one thing at a time. You know, Depending on the, the level of the stress that actually occurs um, uh, depends on how you react to it. But we all need stress. There's no doubt about that. Stress brings out the best in us, yeah, doesn't absolutely. it? absolutely. Mm. I mean, if we didn't have that, we would not get out of bed, basically. We wouldn't have that motivation, I suppose, to get out of, out of bed on a daily basis to, um, to go and do the things we have to do in order to support ourselves. But when you're waking up in the morning and you're already exhausted yeah. and you get to the office and there's a, a list of emails longer than the screen and your in-tray is piling up, uh, you said you know you haven't been able to sleep. Your mind is racing. Uh, that's the sort of thing. It's like a nightmare situation. You don't like that at work. No, not at all. I mean, traditionally, my approach to work had been very um, uh, organised. Uh, on numerous occasions, I've been told that I, I managed the stresses and strains of the position I was in very well. With a thousand things happening at once, people used to say to me, "You handle this so well. There is nothing." that when we come and talk to you about the issues that are really causing us concern, you're able to actually take them on board very effectively and we work through a process in order to solve that. So you never really showed any sort of inability to take on these particular problems. But that particular day, in, you know, when I walked in through the door, 
there were so many things that had been occurring over the Christmas break, uh, for which I was responsible, and which had to be completed within a very short space of time, without necessarily having the staff there to do it, obviously played so much havoc in my mind mentally that um, when I was faced with those mountains as they were on that particular day, I just simply could not uh, manage it. And, and I ended up leaving the office after about an hour and a half and, and maintained my composure as well as I could until I got down into my car and then that's when you know everything fell apart and I bawled my eyes out and, and uh, bawled my eyes out all the way home for, for um, you know, 60 minutes of driving and um, it uh, was a very difficult day, that one, because all the kids were home and um, they'd never seen me in that sort of situation before. And since you have been through that and you've obviously uh, heard other people's stories and you've read lots of accounts of people who've gone through burnout, is that the typical way that they've responded to? The pressure just got to a point, breaking point, and really reduced to tears at the wheel on the way home. Uh, can't wait to get home, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Look, I think um, it, it does actually attack people in different ways. There's no doubt about that. But when I look back on where I was and, and the sort of build-up to this, um, I've asked people who are very close to me what I was like for you know a, a three-month period or a two-month period before I actually got to that point where I couldn't handle everything. And, and in actual fact, my, my mind just closed down. It said, you are doing too much. We're not going to let you do this anymore. I'm going to stop you from doing it. And so the brain took over and that was that. But in talking to people, they said, well, historically your, uh, your method of operation was as I described. Open door policy, anyone could come and talk to you. Everyone knew who you were. Everyone came to you and talked to you about their particular problems and issues. It was never a concern. We always got through it. We always did things. But there was an, a couple of issues that occurred where all of a sudden um, people started to see a change in my personality I started to become uh, irritable both at home and at work they'd never seen that before um, obviously I wasn't sleeping as I said nothing I, I just could not basically get to sleep it was going my mind was going a thousand miles an hour right through the night I was constantly dreaming about things that was going on at work and so forth um, and so my demeanor changed rather than being a fun loving sort of guy which I, I was and I enjoyed having a laugh and I enjoyed getting out there and meeting people, I became fairly insular. I started to close the doors and, and restrict people coming to see me, um, both from a family perspective and also from a work perspective. Uh, and, and so I think that was the biggest sign where people started to say, oops, something is going on. And there was one particular issue where there was an overrun in a, in a capital works project by $500,000, and that's a huge amount of money that all of a sudden a phone call comes through the blue and I'm told we're over budget by 500000 Typically, I would have handled that with um, a very calm exposure. This particular day, I blew my stack, and I have never done that. Mm. So there are definite signs, you know, and I think that's the thing that I say to people. In order to see where your friends are, your family and your work colleagues... You've really got to know them. You've really got to observe them on a day-to-day -day basis, not for the purpose of actually seeing that they are nearing a breakdown, but getting to understand how they operate so that when things are out of the blue, then you can start to say, well, hang on, this doesn't quite add up. Mm. Philip, how old were you when you had this burnout breakdown? Uh, 52. 
And and with those accounts that you've read of others, is this a sort of a, a typical type of uh, age where you might be vulnerable to this sort of thing? Or is this an age when people usually get to assume those sorts of positions where there is quite a lot of responsibility on your shoulders and that contributes to the whole burnout process? Is that the, the sort of thing you've you've gleaned? Yeah, I think from an executive perspective, that's right. But then again, I think about teachers. You know, there's a high level of teacher burnout you can get young teachers who are not exposed so much to life skills and so on who go into the classroom and all of a sudden they've got this enormous amount of responsibility on their shoulders. They've got parents who are consistently asking for better results from their kids and so forth. And so, um, you know, burnout is something that just isn't limited to a particular age group. It's not limited to a particular occupation. Um, anybody, I feel who've got stress and strain in the workplace that's not managed correctly can suffer from a burnout situation. We've been hearing the story of Philip Joyce, whose story is one of recovery from a severe burnout. Sometimes we call it a breakdown. And uh, we will continue our conversation with Phil, but I also want to introduce into the conversation Brett Ryan, who is the CEO of Focus on the Family Australia. Hello, Brett. Welcome along. Oh, thanks, Neil. And hello, Phil. Yes. Uh, Brett, you've been listening in to Phil's story. Uh, what are your thoughts? Because when we talk about this topic, live to work or work to live, sometimes we just get it around slightly the wrong way and it pushes us over the edge. Oh, very much so. And, and Phil's story is not uncommon and uh, I've spoken to numerous people who have um, been on that edge and may have tipped over as Phil had shared and but there's a lot of people who want to get that balance right that work-life balance and so it's not you know compromising work and it's definitely not compromising um, their home life but I think in all in seriousness I think if you're going to compromise anything I think work should be the one that gets compromised more than their family because as Phil has shared his health has been um, severely uh, damaged as a result Uh, and it's great that he's coming through the other side but I think if he had uh, at all if he could have it all over again I think he'd prefer not to go through it all. Phil, let me ask you about how you were doing with your family when we hear about the build-up and all of the stress that's attached to uh, getting to a point where you have a breakdown, where you're in burnout. How were your family coping with this circumstance, Uh, not only just in the lead-up, but when you were at breaking point? Right, it's a really good question, actually. Um, We're a very close-knit family, but... Um, one of the things that uh, our youngest kids have said to me numerous times since since the burnout and so forth, when I've asked them the question, how was it for you, they basically said to me, Dad, we never saw you. You know, you were away all the time. And I did a fly-in, fly-out session for about four years between Goulburn and Brisbane. And so I'd leave on a Sunday night and I'd be back on a Thursday um, night and then try and take up the family role for the Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And... Um, whilst that was fantastic in terms of a financial perspective because we were, I was earning hundreds of thousands of dollars, it was wonderful from that point of view. But um, the fact that I wasn't spending good quality time with our family for the whole week was of real concern to me because a couple of times there were things that happened at home when I was in Brisbane and I'd have to try and solve this issue over the phone um, with a, a wife who was very supportive of me but nevertheless having to deal with young kids at the time and it was the fact that I actually wasn't able to spend that quality time on a day-to-day basis. So um, 
you know, when I went through the breakup, or the, the breakdown rather, the, um, the kids again found that I was not at home. I was leaving for work early before they got up. I'd get home at about 8 o'clock at night, um, see them for an hour or so, have dinner, then get straight back into the work until about 11.30 or 12 o'clock at night and then we'd go through that whole process. And on the weekends, um, it was a case of trying to catch up, you know, and that was very, very difficult. Let me ask Brett about culture in the workplace. Uh, clearly, uh, in Philip's workplace, uh, which is a high-level uh, executive position in a government department, the culture is always the thing, isn't it? Because sometimes you feel like if you don't put in the hours, if you're not putting in uh, the uh, the whole of your life, then somehow or other you'll be set aside from that position. Uh, is that the sort yeah. of concern that people have in the workplace? Very much so. They're always looking for that pat on the back, the promotion, the big office, the you know the higher salary, and all those type of things, and to move ahead. And um, it's interesting uh, the difference, the work to live and live to work. I mean, for for males, we generally, when you ask somebody, uh, when you meet them for the first time, you usually ask them, "What do you do?" You know, it's, yeah. a lot of males identify their life is what they do, not who they are. And when you ask a female, you know, uh, you don't normally ask that question. You usually ask them, you know, tell me about your family or have you got a family? So we actually have a difference between the gender as well, but also that identification of um, how we move ahead and, and provide for our family, which is really, really important. Phil, would you say you were that sort of driven personality? You, you were, uh, you know, working your way up a corporate ladder in that sense. Uh, yeah. you, well, tell me about what it is to be driven to the point where you'll stay up till 11 o'clock at night, take work home, and uh, you, you then stay awake, your mind is racing. Uh, what's it like being in that role? I suppose it's an individual thing as well. I mean, I was not particularly the brightest tool in the shed, you know, when I was going through school. And I had a twin who was. And so there was, a, there was a competition there to start off with, but I certainly was driven from the day I started work right through to the point of where I had the breakdown to, one, I was trying to provide for my family, which is what Brett said. It was very, very important for me to be able to provide a good quality life for my family. And in some respects, I found that I needed to sacrifice my own, my own time with them in order to do that, like when I was away a lot. Um, Talking about the culture, it was an interesting period to be within the, the department because we had a very clear culture within the organisation of trying to look after our people. And, and in many cases, I tried to implement things like no email Fridays because emails were starting to become such a, a um, bane of everyone's life that within my own division, I said, let's not have emails transferred from one person to another within the division. Get up out of your seat and go and actually talk to people rather than sending them an email. Um, I tried to implement the idea of uh, every couple of uh, fortnight is to get everyone out of the office and go out to a coffee shop for half an hour and sit down and talk about anything other than work. So the culture within the organisation was very um, supportive of that, Um, but then it came down to the personal level, and my personal level was drive, 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 and without knowing it, I stepped over that line where there is an absolute definite need to put family first and to put the job second. I have a different philosophy now, I must say, compared to what I had when I was in that particular position. It's a high price to pay, though, to finally get the message. Yeah, absolutely. It's Neil with you on 2020. Do we live to work or do we work to live? 
another way of putting those issues of a work-life balance into a way that you can actually assess uh, whether you're actually working to live or whether you are living to work. Our two guests this hour, Philip Joyce, whose story is one of a recovery from a severe burnout, and Brett Ryan, the CEO of Focus on the Family Australia, talking through this issue. Philip, uh, if I can just ask you, we were talking in this last segment about the things that make you a driven person. Uh, That drivenness uh, was clearly the thing that uh, got you into some hot water when you actually went through that burnout. Uh, Let me just take you just beyond the initial downward spiral, the tears at the wheel in the car as you're driving home, you can't face the office, you can't face the emails, you can't face the entry. Uh, those weeks and months beyond the initial burnout phase, uh, describe those in the way that you that you were actually feeling at the time. Yeah, that was a, a very, very difficult and dark period, Neil. It certainly was. Um, the overarching feeling was one of absolute worthlessness and absolute inability to function at all, in actual fact. Um, I was not uh, happy. I couldn't raise a smile. I couldn't look at people in the eye. I couldn't take a phone call. I was scared stiff about taking a phone call from anything to do with work. Um, I just felt that I had let every single person down in my life, my family, Um, my work colleagues, my boss, um, there was absolutely no ability that I had in my own mind at the time to reconcile the fact that, one, I'd had a problem, but two, how I was going to get out of it. And um, I was just totally uh, a worthless wreck, is the best way to describe it. Let me ask you about faith in God, because you hadn't been a very... A spiritually minded person in the lead up to your breakdown but you rediscovered God in the time when you were at your lowest point yes yeah I mean it was marvellous actually I um over, throughout my life I've had a, I have had a faith and there have been times when I've asked God to help me and he certainly has but at the lowest point of my depth of despair um, I I actually was outside of our house and I was I was doing some work in the little forest we've got at our place and I started to look around and see what was around me and and out of, um, it may not have been absolute desperation, but I started to pray and I said, God, I need to have your help. And with instantaneously there was this absolutely wonderful sensation of, you'll be right, Phil. Like an encouragement. Absolutely. And was it like an audible voice or just an impression that you had? It was a feeling that just swept over me. At at that instantaneous moment, I was able to recognise the things around me that held so much beauty. And the only way that that could be is through God's God's ability to create, you know. And and it was that instant that um, I just committed myself to God. Brett Ryan, let me ask you about faith when people are going through some of the deepest, darkest places in their lives. Uh, when we can hear uh, Phil hearing the voice of God uh, in that time, is that something that you've seen uh, over the years where, you, where you've either been talking to people, and I know you've led large ministry roles before, uh, what sort of impression do you have about people who discover God at, at the lowest parts in their lives? 
Yes, I have an old uh, sort of a, a motto, nothing is ever wasted. The verses in Romans that all things work together for our good. And sometimes when you're going through it, you don't, you know, you can't really see any good in the crisis. But in Phil's case, you know, he it took a, a crisis. It took a, you know, a destructive influence over his life to gain his attention. And then he was able to work his way back up. And I think, you know, God uses all these situations and he uses others for his mouthpiece, his hands, his feet. I know that sounds very cliche, but, you know, that that intimacy with God, I don't think we can ever take it for granted, that, that closeness that we have. And because he was sort of a distance away from God, God came to meet him. And I think that's a really important aspect of this whole lesson, that God is always available. We just have to turn to him when we're going through those hard times. Is it possible to be so busy in your life there is no time to acknowledge God? Would that have been your case, Philip? Um, I, yeah, I, everything was consuming. There's no doubt about that. From the moment you actually woke up to the moment you went to sleep, everything was consuming. And so um, I, I don't. I think that there were times when I turned to God, even at that point. You know, I, I recall praying a number of times about various things, but I didn't have a relationship. That was the thing. I've got a relationship now, and, and, and that relationship is exceptionally important to me. Uh, Brett Ryan, the idea of knowing about God is somewhat different to knowing God. Uh, knowing God and how he relates as a father to his children, obviously an important thing that is an encouragement when you know you're going through tough cr- tough times and a crisis. Yeah, it's very much so. I mean, obviously I was looking after children. We talked about the fact that sometimes we can know God out in our heads, but we don't necessarily know him in our hearts. And uh, we're all God's kids, and I think we can actually have a lot of uh, theory about God, and we intellectually rationalize and all those type of things. But that, as uh, Phil was shared about that relationship, it's a hard aspect. It's, a, it's transactional. And um, and I think that's the, the reality of it. It's not just about knowing God in your head. It's about knowing God in your heart. And Philip, when you're on the recovery trail, uh, you've had a reconnection in your faith in God. Uh, what sort of things happen in your recovery? Uh, timelines and, uh, and the sorts of things that happen with your family and in your workplace. How difficult is it on that road to recovery from burnout? Well, I think it's a really difficult road but you need to have the support of everybody around you and that includes doctors and psychologists psychiatrists and so forth but um, at that point of accepting God into my life there certainly was a change in terms of my own attitude to where I needed to go I felt that I had an opportunity to do something that I was not able to before and that was one to accept that I was in difficult trouble but I had a shoulder to cry on now that I didn't have before. So the process of working through that transition to a point where I was able to ultimately get off antidepressant pills and so forth um, really rested on, one, an understanding of what it's like to, to um, love God, but also to see that embraced within my family and make an absolute conscious effort to right the wrongs that might have occurred within the relationships that we'd had in the family. I mean, it was a very difficult, difficult period for my wife. Um, she was having to take the burden of this fellow who had always supported her and, and the family and all of a sudden being an absolute mess. Um, we did grow apart. There is no doubt about that. 
but the determination that I had in order to move forward and create a, a much more loving and embracing family and one that was full of support was so, so strong. And it was only God-driven, I believe. It was so strong that we have developed again as a, a wonderful couple. And I don't think I could have done that without having a faith. There's a new leaf, isn't there? A new oh, It's like a, the God of second chances and, uh, and he comes through. Brett Ryan, when we talk about the God of second chances, uh, he is the one who is ready to give us an, a new fresh start. And uh, as we say, you know, go to the bottom of the, the pit and uh, you get lifted up. New opportunities, new things begin to emerge. Absolutely, and I think the interesting thing is that, I mean, uh, the relationship that he had with his wife, his wife is uh, full credit to her to hang in there and support her husband going through a crisis, and she had to do, obviously, a lot of healing for herself coming back, you know, um, to see her husband that used to be the, you know, the rock, and then he was actually almost like jelly, and, and seeing him going through that it would have been a very difficult thing and uh, but that's how how our father sees us we we can he can't love us anymore and he can't love us any less and despite our problems that we do and we get ourselves into all sorts of problems uh, god will be able to restore us back to full full health if we allow him to Uh, brett what are your thoughts on the things that drive us in our lives uh we've heard phil was very driven we've been talking about being driven to the point where god is out of the picture Uh, tell me your thoughts on the driving forces in our lives it's a really good question neil the fact is that sometimes it could be you know someone told us that we would never succeed and so that drives us that those little voices in our head that you know we couldn't succeed or our father or our parents said something like that or a teacher uh it could be that competitive nature as uh, as uh, phil has just said that you know com- competition is what drives us or it could be that accolades we need our self-esteem built up there's a lot of a host of different things that could actually cause us to get the balance wrong and, uh, and when we identify those issues, it can actually be helpful before it gets out of hand. What is driving our rocket boosters, if you like? What's driving us? What's fueling us to go to uh, the nth degree to get the long hours and to uh, do as many hours as possible and sacrificing our family at the same time. Do we live to work or do we work to live? Our two guests this hour, Philip Joyce, who's sharing his story of going through a severe burnout, and Brett Ryan, the CEO of Focus on the Family, also with us uh, talking through these issues of work-life balance. Uh, Let me firstly uh, ask you, Brett Ryan, uh, the sorts of red flags that uh, that are there that you need to keep a lookout for when it comes to this work-life balance and uh, and whether you live to work or work to live? Oh, it's interesting that Phil mentioned that some of those things, that his irritability, he also talked about he was a bit short with his staff and his family. I mean, there's a whole host of other things. I mean, we start, the, even just saying the words, oh, I'm doing this for the kids, I'm doing this for the family, those words articulating it is not what you want to be able to say. You don't do those things just for your family. You say things like, um, maybe a slower day is coming. We, we put these illusions in our, into our vocabulary, into our language, and, um, and that's, that's a flag in itself. We struggle to have some time together with the kids, that quality time, and most importantly, quantity time. Mm. I think if, the, if you could ha- actually do it all over again, I think Phil would say that you know, he, he, his kids and his wife were sort of 
independent, even though they were close and they loved each other, his definition of providing for his family uh, is different of a, a different level of success, I think, and actually has to define what is success. Um, I think that distance, you know, you try and um, your calendar gets too full and you don't have time to go out and socialize with other people and you start having poor sleep, you're not exercising, you're not eating right. All those type of things are some little red flags to address before they get out of hand. When you're going through that burnout, uh, Philip, how long did it take you to get from, you know, the, the downward spiral to a point where you said, well, I'm feeling well? What's the length of time? Um, I would think it was two years, two and a half years, um, to the point of where I started to say, well, this is now behind me and I can can look towards a brighter future. So, um, yeah, it did take a long time to work through all those particular issues. And a lot of them were really to do with my own self-esteem, recognising that, um, you know, I, I was somebody of worth and and um, I thank my psychologist and psychiatrist for, for helping me through that issue and giving me the strategies to to identify that it's not it wasn't my fault. That was part of it. It wasn't my fault. It wasn't anybody's fault. But um, to recognise that I did have an opportunity to learn from it, which is the most important thing, which I have done, and um, and move on. And at what point in that two, two and a half years did you get to a point where you just knew that you could get through this, that there was some hope at the end of a very dark tunnel? Oh, it was funny, you know, because I actually stopped crying at TV commercials and, <laughs> <laughs> and, and I actually started to laugh again. And it was, it was a very interesting transition from not being able to laugh to all of a sudden have this, this ability to recognise the sense of humour of people around me and various things that happened. So, um, it, well, I mean, laughter is a wonderful thing and it, um, it certainly was a turning point in my point of uh, recovery for sure. Uh, let me ask Brett Ryan, uh, a thought comes to mind, uh, really coming back to a biblical foundation and those things that are built into Christian godly faith that helped to prevent these sorts of things. And I'm actually talking about one of the Ten Commandments and one that we often don't talk about very much. And that is uh, that whole idea of, you know, you shall work six days and on the seventh day you'll rest or you'll have a Sabbath. Now, yeah, different different people have... Years. The Sabbath is a really, really important thing. I mean, our body is not designed to go at 24-7 and at DEFCON 5 for constantly. There's times, there's seasons when we need to be really busy but there's also to be times and seasons that we need to have breaks. And that uh, biblical mandate to have a, have a day of rest is really, really important. And that day of rest too, not a purposeless day, not necessarily a day we just do our own thing, although it's nice to have those days, but a day when you can reassess priorities, a day when you can set those disciplines in place, those disciplines of the heart, disciplines of your work life. This is a sort of a day where you can make a reassessment of what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. It's, I mean, it's just, I mean, I, when I talk to at seminars, I, I talk about what drives you, what's the thing that fuels your tank in the sense of what re-energizes you. And we have to actually focus on those things. I mean, some, it's just reading a book. Sometimes it might be just going for a walk in the garden. Sometimes it might be doing some exercise. Sometimes it might just simply doing absolutely nothing. But it re-energizes, refuels our tank and we can actually build up our emotional energy, our physical energy and as you've already pointed out we need to um, realign our priorities.
And if I ask you, Philip, when it comes to the sorts of downtime opportunities that you do have, uh, do you do you try and fill those downtime opportunities with things that are filling your mind with all sorts of other stuff? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, you're in a recovery and you can look back on having gone through what you've gone through. Uh, what do you do now to relax? Well, it's interesting that Brett talks about discipline because I have a very strict discipline now in terms of work. Five o'clock comes, the computer goes off, the door in the office is shut, and I walk out. And I don't care necessarily about what else is on the plate because I know full well that when I get back in the office the next day, I can manage that within the time frame that I've actually got to work in. And talking about the ability to take time out, I really encourage everybody to take the time out during the day, just to smell the roses, to actually live for the moment, to get up out of your desk, stop doing what you're doing, go for a 20-minute walk. Is it an illusion that uh, we have to be there and we have to be switched on uh, beyond our normal working hours? Uh, You're saying that, you know, you just uh, quit uh, the desk at 5 o'clock, you're on your way, you don't care about what else is happening. Is it an illusion to think that we think that we're so important that we need to stay on and work harder and work harder? Look, I I just think that um, all deadlines are man-made and um, Hmm. no matter what happens, we should be able to change them. And if my boss actually at the time was very, very good, if I was able to go to her and say, I can't do this, she would say, that's fine, I'll let the minister know. It is is independent people putting deadlines on people that are are just um, uh, not achievable for the sake of something else, you know. I don't believe that we should worry about deadlines too much now. Uh, what are your thoughts on deadlines, uh, Brett? Obviously, we need deadlines for a lot of things, but uh, deadline, there's deadlines and then there's deadlines. Absolutely. Uh, very much so. I mean, the, the, the verse in Colossians where it talks about, you know, we should work under the Lord, not just under man. You know, work hard, do really well, be focused, give your undivided attention when you're at work, but then you have to give your, you can disengage, give yourself permission. And those times, the unexpected expectations on work and and the boss wants you to do certain things, you can actually say, no, I can't at the moment. I will work really hard tomorrow or I will work, you know, I'll work this um, for an extra hour tonight, but I can't do this on a regular basis. There are going to be seasons, as I said. It's not saying that work is not important, but your family and your own health is even more important. I remember a quote that says, if you're a winner at work and a loser at home, you're a loser. And I thought that was a, encapsulated everything. You can be as successful as you like um, at at work and get the accolades, but if your family is disengaged and and dysfunctional, you know what is true success. The ability to actually say no to a boss is such an important thing to be able to do, but there needs to be some qualification on that too. It's not just a case of saying no, I can't do that, but it's of course a qualifi- it's a case of saying no, I can't do that, but I can do this. You know, so that there's yeah. not an absolute door shut in the face of the boss. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. That. No, that's right. So um, it is a really important thing for people in senior positions and managerial positions, supervised positions, to, to be able to accept from their staff the ability that sometimes, just sometimes, you know, they can't do everything that's being asked and be humi- and, and actually take that on board and... and um, something with it. You know, there's two uh, there's two dimensions here, isn't there? The dimension that you look at from the employee perspective, and then there's the dimension you look at from the boss's perspective. Uh, these are slightly different, but I can hear what you're saying, Philip. There needs to be a little bit of uh, tolerance either way. Absolutely. And when we impose strict deadlines as a boss, 
Um, I think that you really do need to stand back and ask the question yourself, would I necessarily be able to do that within the time frame I've given? And if I can't, then you need to be flexible. And it is all about flexibility in the workplace. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Now, I want to talk and about... The, and in, when a boss um, is that flexible and has that understanding, you're going to get a better employee. Oh, you're going to have a far greater productivity at times and that chance for you know, going the extra mile when it's required. But also, if, if, you, if you look after your staff, the staff will look after you as well. Absolutely. Now, running a little short of time, uh, Brett Ryan, uh, CEO, Focus on the Family, such a wonderful organisation, and uh, there seems to be resources for everything at, at Focus on the Family. Are there any resources you can point to that people could get a hold of to help to just get this balance right? I oh, very much so. There's one book that I read, and it, the title has changed, and I can't remember, but if you looked up, it was written by Andy Stanley, and it's called Choose to Cheat. And I think it's an outstanding book, um, to actually help people, um, you know, get that navigate and be able to say no to certain things. And um, if you're going to cheat someone, cheat your, cheat your work rather than cheat your family. Um, we've also got some helpful other articles. And also the fact is if you talk to somebody, I think that's the most important mm. thing. Don't isolate yourself and think that you're alone. The more you can talk about these, and I think it's great that uh, Phil shared his story, that um, the stigma of actually going to see someone, a counsellor, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, is, is not to be underestimated or speak to a, a pastor. Most importantly, include your family on the journey. And I think that will be a really, really important aspect is the more we communicate, the better it is going to be. Silence is not your friend. No, not at all. And Philip, have you found that your friends didn't ditch you along the way? Uh, they were actually there or uh, we haven't got a lot of time, but... Quickly? Yes, no, they, they, they hung by, stayed by me and um, they are much closer to me now than what they were. Wow. Okay, well, to both of you, Philip Joyce and uh, your story of going through breakdown and the recovery from that, which I'm very pleased to say has been a very good recovery, and to Brett Ryan, the CEO of Focus on the Family, just uh, fabulous getting the input input from the two of you, and I know that listeners to our conversation uh, will uh, think very deeply about living to work or working to live. You do have to look carefully at those. Uh, Brett and Philip, thanks so much for being with us today on 2020. Pleasure. Thanks, Neon. Thanks. Like what you've just heard? There's more great podcasts, or you can listen to us live at vision.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener supported. Your donation of any amount will help us continue connecting faith to life. Learn more or donate today at vision.org.au.